We're continuing this week um, on the series that we've been doing through Hebrews. Um, and in the first couple of weeks, we managed to transverse five verses. Then we did ten verses um, last week. This week, we're going to do a whole chapter. <laughs> and that is chapter two. And I'm going to break it down into bits as we go through. But this whole book is an exploration of the glory of Christ. And the writer moves on from his general explanation in the beginning into unveiling the role of Jesus in setting us free. And his continuing action in interceding for us. This whole book is about Jesus. And for those who know Jesus, you cannot help but read it and be thrilled by it as you begin to understand it. Certainly, as I've been studying it again, I've been reminded and refreshed and renewed in all that God has done for us in Christ and all that Jesus is. So let's pick up in chapter 2 and verse 1. For this reason, we must pay, pay much closer attention to what we've heard so that we don't drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty... How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, and it was confirmed to us by those who heard. And God also testifying with them both by signs and wonders and by various miracles, by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. There is a simple message in these four verses. He says, God revealed the law, maybe through angels. And in the law, there were consequences and punishments. You obeyed the law, and everything was fine. You didn't obey the law, there was consequences and punishments. And then he says, we've received something greater than than the law. You and I have received so great a salvation, which was confirmed through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And the distribution of the Spirit's gifts, he says, and was confirmed by the word of the Lord himself. And was testified to by God the Father. And if you've seen all these things and experienced all these things, he says, don't neglect it. Don't drift away. Don't become detached. Don't become complacent with what you've received. And this is a theme that's picked up a number of times throughout this book. And we will come back to it. But suffice to say for the moment, God has not called you and I to sit on a bus with a ticket in our hand waiting to get to heaven. He's not called us just to say, right, I've got salvation. I can go about my life just how I choose. God calls us to make much of this great salvation that we've received. The word the writer uses is drift away. And most people don't become backslidden or become cold willfully and in a moment. People who grow cold or backslidden tend to drift. It starts with neglect. It starts with not quite being being as fervent, of skipping church because we don't fancy it of not connecting with the people of God. And gradually, 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 we become colder and colder. 
And that's what the writer here is warning against. Don't become complacent with the salvation you've received. It's like the story of the young man who was starting to get bored in church and he was speaking to his father. And he said, but, but I'm bored, I don't want to come. And his father, this is an old story so you'll understand. They're sitting in front of a fire and the father takes a piece of coal and lifts it and puts it on the grate. And you see this glowing piece of coal gradually dying and becoming gray. And then he takes the piece of coal and he lifts it back into the fire and it becomes ignited again. When we disconnect ourselves, when we lay ourselves aside from the people of God and from connecting with God and from fellowship, we can become cold and hard. We can become disconnected from this great salvation. And God says, the word says, don't drift away. Don't neglect what God has done for you. For it's the most powerful, the most wonderful thing that could have happened in your life and in my life. Don't neglect it. Don't be complacent. Grab hold of it. Stay with it. And from there, in the rest of the passage, the writer begins to open up for us how this salvation has come about. So let's move on to the next set of verses, verse 5 to verse 9. For he did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere, saying, What is man that you remember him, or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor. You've appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things in in subjection to him. But we see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death death for everyone. The writer is beginning to build a picture here. He starts by saying that it was not angels that were chosen to, to rule the world. And we saw that last week. He said... When God created man, he gave him the mandate, the role, the responsibility to rule this world. Though we were made in status a little lower than the angels, God entrusted to man the rulership of this world. Have we done a good good job with it? In our debate at Purpose Driven Pint on uh, Friday evening, we debated that the world has no hope. We all ended on a really happy note. (laughs) No, we haven't particularly done a good job, but that's the, the role that we were given to do. And then he says, man was crowned with glory and honor. Man was made a little lower than the angels and given the mandate to rule and crowned with glory and honor. We have that which reflects 
the glory and honor that is the Father's because we are made in his image. And in living out of our destiny, we should have reflected that glory and honor across the world and in the world, but we failed to do it. But then man, having been given the right, the mandate, the responsibility to rule this world, unfortunately messed it up. We sided with Satan in rebellion. And we gave the mandate to rule this world over to Satan. We've given it. That's why Jesus calls him the God of this world, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We took that which was ours, and by rebelling and siding with Satan, Satan had the right to rule this world. And even though man was given the right to rule, we don't see him able to exercise that right any longer. But then he says, and this is where we have the, the twist, the turn. He says, although we don't see God's intention worked out in mankind at this time, we do see Jesus as a man now reigning. So Jesus took on the form of a man so that he could fulfill God's original intention to rule the world. And Jesus, because he has triumphed over the enemy and over death, which we'll come to in a moment, he has now the right, he's taken back on behalf of mankind, the right to rule upon this earth. And that's why he is now exalted to the highest place and seated in glory and high above all things, because he has taken back that right that was originally given to man to rule. And he is ruling as a man on our behalf. He took the form of a man so that on man's behalf he could fulfill the original intention until he brings all things back under his divine rule. And notice in verse 9, although man was created with glory and honor, it's Jesus who now has the glory and honor originally attributable to mankind. Jesus has that glory and honor for which we were created. Because he has shown that you can live as a man upon the earth, sinless, in perfection, conquering the power of the enemy, and therefore ruling, reflecting all the glory that God intended for man. He carries it in his person. In Jesus, all the glory and the honor is summed up, and the original intention of the earth is his to bear. And then he says, he has tasted death for everyone. And we'll come back to that in a moment. But essentially he's saying because he triumphed over death, he now is crowned with that glory and honor. Jesus' role was not just to die in our place, but also to rule on our behalf. I'll say that again. Jesus' role was not just to die in our place, but to rule on our behalf as a man on the seat of the universe. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect or complete the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father. 
For which reason he's not ashamed to call them brothers, sisters, saying, I'll proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation. I'll sing your praise. And again, I'll put my trust in him. And again, behold the children, I and the children whom God has given me. And the writer here is spelling out God's original intention. God's desire, his plan was to have a family. It says he wanted to have many children to share his glory. He wanted a people who would reflect the glory of God upon the earth. Now, going back early, earlier week, what's glory? Everyone, anyone remember? What did we define glory as? We define glory. Hmm? Is that? that? That's getting to the heart of it, yeah. It's the inner beauty of God's splendor and of his character shining out. So, yeah, you're pretty much there. The inner beauty of God's character and of his splendor shining out. That's what glory is. And what the writer is saying is, you and I were were created to reflect the inner beauty and character and splendor of God so that it shines out of us. And wherever we go, people see the glory of God within us. That's what we're created for. And God wanted to have a family so that many people would share that characteristic. And he wants us to share in his inner beauty and character so that as we become like him, his beauty shines out of us. That's what he wants for each one of us. People say that dog owners start to look like their dogs after a while. (laughs) Yeah. Or maybe the dogs start to look like their owners. (laughs) There's some worrying people here with some dogs. (laughs) We're called to look like God as we spend time with him. That's not that we may, may look physically different, but that we take on his characteristics as we spend time in his presence. Love, joy, Peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is the character of God. And as we spend time with him, these things should begin to shine forth. And be, as we display them, as we walk in them, we are reflecting the character of God, the inner beauty of God, and the splendor and glory That God intended for mankind. Let God's spirit do his work to bring forth that fruit. For in doing so you will reflect the glory and the splendor of God. That's the purpose of our existence. But the writer says. Jesus himself was made perfect, complete through suffering. Because through, by going through that suffering, by being obedient as a servant on our behalf, he completed the original intention for mankind and therefore could enter into the glory of God as a ruler. And then it also says, you and I are brothers and sisters of Christ Jesus. We've got a big brother in heaven who stands there on our behalf Pleading for us. And the writer will develop this later on. 
interceding for us, standing with us. My brother's bigger than your brother. (laughs) Nothing can come against us. Nothing can overcome us because we've got a big brother in heaven who rules the universe. Chapter 2, verse 14 to 18 now. And this is where we get into the nub of where this writer is going. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of the devil. Or, sorry, him who had the power, that is the devil. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in in, in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And here the writer is, is... Mapping out how this great salvation that we shouldn't neglect has come to us. How did God establish his purpose to have a family that would reflect his glory? And this is what the plan was. That Jesus would become like us. Would become a man and share in our humanity. He took on flesh and blood. So that in the form of a man, he could destroy the power of the enemy and set free humanity who were in slavery to Satan. The slavery was our fear of death. This, for the early church, um, for the first at least five centuries, was the critical model for salvation. That Jesus, in coming as a man, had defeated the power of Satan. That's what they, they, they focused on all the time. That was how salvation worked for the early church. And St. Augustine pictured it like this. He pictured it that, sorry, who's ever been fishing? How how do you catch a fish? With a a rod, yeah, and what do you do? Bait. You put bait on, on a hook. <laughs> yeah. You put bait on a hook. So you cover the hook with something attractive, and then the fish comes and he bites it, and then he gets hooked. Well, St. Augustine pictured that what Jesus did was covered his divinity with human flesh. And Satan, seeing a tasty morsel of human flesh, took him. And then at that vital moment, he was hooked. And he was defeated. Interesting imagery, isn't it? But that's how, that was how they lived. The issue is this. Jesus became a man. He took on human flesh. And in living a perfect life as a man, he defeated on behalf of all men and women, Satan once and for all. And therefore we are free. And the writer says the power 
ultimate power that Satan has over us is death. Because death is separation from God. Death is the consequence of sin. It's the penalty for the sinfulness of mankind. It's the just outcome of our rebellion against God. And as Benjamin Franklin once said, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. See, the fear of death is the power of sin. The uncertainty of what lies beyond the grave drives many of our behaviours as a society. The prevailing philosophy of society is live for the moment. Just do it. Why? Because this is all we have, this 70 years, and we fear what's beyond it. Therefore, we're not going to think about that. We'll just live for now because potentially there's nothing beyond it. We'll just live in the moment and experience it. The fear of death drives our behaviors. Because if there's nothing beyond death, everything is pointless. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in the removal of the fear of death, God gives us something to live for, now and for eternity. Jesus came to bring assurance of life now and of life to come. I have come that they might have life and have it in all its fullness. So Jesus has broken the fear of death. There is no fear of death, for we have the promise of resurrection. Death need hold no fear for anybody here. Death is not an end, it's a continuation. Death is the release into eternal life, because the eternal life is already within me now. And will be fulfilled in a day to come. So the power of death is broken. Therefore the power of Satan is broken. He has no power over us. Jesus has defeated him. As a man. Coming. In, in frail flesh. And dying on our behalf. Jesus. Has broken the power of Satan. And also, Jesus came to be our high priest. That is to act on our behalf, to be our intermediary. He was man of very man to represent humanity to God. And in that, he became like us in all things. He is God of very God to represent God to humanity. He is the perfect intercessor, the perfect intermediary. As man, he suffered death on our behalf. He died a death that he didn't deserve so that we can conquer death and rise to eternal life. It says in verse 17, he became a propitiation. Many versions don't have that word still in it. But what that word means is he suffered in full the consequences of sin and death on our behalf. And by so doing, deflected the consequences away from us. He acted as a shield and he bore all of that suffering, pain and death so that we could enter life. I can live in the knowledge and the hope and the expectation that death is not an end for me. That beyond the grave I will rise again to a new and eternal life. That Jesus has done everything that was necessary to make that happen. 
And now I can live with a confident expectation that whether I live or whether I die, I'm in his hands. And my life is not a temporal thing, but an eternal thing. Jesus stepped down from his glory, became one of us, and made the way free. On the courses we run, this story we tell of the prisoner and the judge, and I'm sure you've all heard it, but it's worth reiterating at this point. How two friends started off in childhood, and as they grew older, they went in different directions. And one proceeded through education and became a lawyer and eventually a judge. And the other went off in a different direction and ended up in, 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 um, in crime. And one day, the judge was seated in his, in his, uh, on his uh, bench and the friend from childhood was brought before him. And in this case, the, the, the just penalty for the crime was a fine. And the judge says, because I'm a judge... I must enact the rule of law, and you must receive the penalty. But because I'm your friend, he got down out of the bench, came down, stood beside the prisoner, and wrote the check on his behalf. And that's what Jesus has done. As judge, he judges sin. But he's come and associated with us, done everything necessary on our behalf for us to walk free. There's the other story, I think it's a true story, of the Japanese prison camp. And they all tools were account, had to be accounted for at the end of the day. And one day, the Japanese um, soldiers counted one shovel short. So they lined up all the British prisoners in front, in front of them. And they demanded that this shovel be brought forth, or or else one by one the prisoners would be killed. So after a pause, one of the prisoners stepped forward and said, I took it, and he was killed. And then when they went to count the shovels again, they were all there. This man had laid down his life for those he, he cared for. And Jesus took the punishment that he did not deserve for us that we might walk free. Hallelujah. Jesus died for me and in my place to take away my sins and the consequences of my sins. Hallelujah. But it doesn't end there. Verse 18, it says, And now he can help those who are tempted or tested Because he himself has suffered and was tempted or tested and passed every test. Because he became a man, because he suffered all that we suffer and yet triumphed over it all. Because he's faced everything we face. Because he's had every temptation known to man and more. He can help us to overcome. Because he has perfect empathy with humanity. There is nothing we can go through. There is nothing we can experience. There is no temptation given to man that Jesus hasn't already faced on our behalf. And he's waiting there in heaven for us to call out to him, to intercede for us and to stand with us and to show us the way through. He is our perfect intercessor.
because he is a man has suffered all things just as we and yet was without sin. So as you confront things this week, remember your, your big brother, your great high priest, the one who stands in glory and rules on your behalf, for he is greater than any other solution that we can come up against. Trust in him, stand with him, and call upon his name, for he is a great saviour. Amen. Thank you for your great salvation, Lord. Lord, sometimes it might be that we think we know all this, but yet, Lord, when we are refreshed in our understanding, we can't help but go deeper in our love for you, in our admiration, and in our thankfulness of all that you do for us. Help us, Lord God, this week to remember all you've done and to walk hand in hand with you. Thank you, Lord. Amen.